Welcome to Podcast at Boatwright. I am Lucretia McCulley, Director of Outreach Services at Boatwright Library. Our author today is Dr. Woody Holton, Associate Professor of History and American Studies. Dr. Holton is the author of Abigail Adams, an engaging biography that reinterprets Mrs. Adams' life story and re-examines women's roles in the creation of the Republic. Published by the Free Press in November 2009, Abigail Adams was a New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice, and it is one of three winners of the 2010 Bancroft Prize, considered among the most prestigious awards in the field of American history writing. Woody, thank you for joining us today. Sure. So our first question to start off, what inspired you to write on this particular topic? Well, my previous book was on the origins of the Constitution, and I ended up being convinced that bond speculators had a lot to do with that. These are kind of like the Goldman Sachs people that we're reading about these days uh, who were speculating, in this case, in government securities, buying them at a fraction of their face value and then making a killing off of them. And while I was working on the book, I tried to find one of these guys that was really well-documented to use as a sort of a recurring character in my book, and ended up finding that among the most well-documented of all those speculators was, surprisingly enough, Abigail Adams. This is 20 years before she became the vice president's wife. She figured out early on during the Revolutionary War that this was an incredibly profitable investment. And she made a real killing on her husband's behalf, speculating in, in government securities. All right. Well, thank you. That's fascinating. And it does parallel a lot of what's going on today. Well, how did students contribute to the development of this book? A lot. My uh, boss over in the history department, Hugh West, allowed me to teach classes that were quite specific uh, to what I was working on with the book. So I taught one, in this case, called uh, Abigail, The Era of Abigail Adams or something like that. And I had students um, write research papers on particular interests of theirs. And in many cases, I learned a great deal from them. And if you look in the footnotes of the book, you know, where I'm thanking people for various contributions, a lot of the people that I thank in the, in the footnotes are students. For instance, uh, one student was interested in her servants. And that's actually an important topic because in the HBO movie about her husband, John Adams, they, she's portrayed as having no servants. The reality is that she was waited on by servants every moment of her life from, from birth when she had her father's family had slaves all the way through to her death. And so um, Bridget Westhoven was a student of mine who, who really had some great insights about her relation with her servants. So uh, she helped on that. Uh, various students helped with, uh, for instance, Abigail's relationships with her two sisters. She had an older sister and a younger sister, and like a lot of people today, very different relationships with those two sisters. The older sister she was much closer to, the younger sister she kind of almost treated as her daughter and telling her who she should marry and not and so forth. Uh, and that came out of a student's um, paper. And then at the end, I was fortunate enough to have a couple of work-study students, uh, Emily Silkatis um, and Kylie Horney, who fact-checked the book. Um, and uh, I, I'm a little embarrassed to admit it, but just about any honest author will, that um, depending on, particularly on how quickly you write these things, there can be uh, small errors can crop up particularly in trying to get quotations because, you know, Abigail's spelling was complete. Everybody's was, but hers in particular. And her, she was sort of uneducated by law because as a young woman, she was not allowed to get much of an education. So if you want to get things dead on accurate, you really need another pair of eyes. And so I had students checking facts. Emily also, uh, by her own 
definition was a fashionista, which is great because I'm not. And she studied and really ended up having some great insights about fashion at the time as it affected Abigail. For instance, Abigail finally left the United States for the first time in 1784, sailed across the ocean to join her husband. And he was in France, but she stopped over in England and really didn't like the women of England. She was very gender conscious, so she always focused on other women and, of course, had a lot of things to say in support of other women, but she really ran down British women. Now, that's partly because she'd just been in a war against the British, but she thought that the women of Britain were really mannish looking, as she put it. And I asked Emily to look into that, and sure enough, the custom at the time was for women, when they went out on their morning social visits, to wear riding attire, the kind of clothes that you would wear riding a horse. And so, of course, they looked managed to Abigail because, you know, they're like these lawn jockeys is what these women look like, and those are men's clothes. And so I think that's how she got this this notion of women, of English women, women is looking really masculine. And, and uh, as I say in that footnote, I owe that entirely to, to Emily. Oh, what a great experience for the students. Yeah. I, was, I was glad she was there, glad all those students were there. Well, how do you think the University of Richmond community could use this book to address various social issues on campus? Well, I'd love to have people um, discuss it in, in relationship to modern gender issues. I'm always amazed at how reluctant my students are to call themselves feminists. Now, if you ask them on particular issues, should men and women make the same uh, salaries and is it fair that there's more bathrooms for men than women at football games and things like that? Uh, they tend to, to me, look like feminists, but they, they really are afraid of that word. And I think some of her discussions of that issue might really help them think through the difference between the thing and the name for the thing. But, but she also, I think, would provide some interesting ambiguity because she, the term feminist really didn't exist then as it does now. Um, and, but in many ways, she was a feminist. In many ways, however, she was not. For instance, she thought of travel as a men's thing to do, and she was very reluctant about going on that sailing voyage over to join her husband in Europe. And one of them, I was talking about uh, her relationship to these women riding horses in England. She herself, I was shocked to discover, never once got on a horse. Uh, she just saw that as a, as a mannish thing. To, so my, I guess my point is that she was just as conscious of gender issues as, a, as people are today, uh, and, and, and talked about it a lot in a way that people not always are so willing to talk about it. I think for her, it was a, it was a, a subject of endless fascination, and I think maybe that, that her interest in it might be infectious. All right. Well, thank you very much. And our last question, how did library services support you in writing this book? I definitely couldn't have written it um, without, in particular, uh, their interlibrary loan office, where I almost felt like uh, Betty Tobias was a member of my staff, not the <laughs> library staff, uh, because um, I used some things online, and actually uh, Jim Gwynn had gotten early American uh, newspapers and, and early American imprints. I think the whole library staff was involved in that huge purchase so that I could read the newspapers that Abigail read, as well as the books that Abigail read. And, and the 18th Century Online is another expensive online collection that the library had obtained for me. But really the, the hardest part was reading all the stuff on microfilm. Um, and um, Betty got hun literally hundreds of reels of microfilm. Because of course, and shortly after I would send something back, I'd realize, oh my God, the most important letter was on that film, on that some last reel. And 
And she never complained about having to, to even on the reorders. And then again, when these students came along checking quotations for me, we ordered everything again. And it was wonderful here to be able to download things from microfilm directly into my computer. So I still have every letter um, that I read, or the, every letter that I ended up actually quoting from, I have uh, a copy, a facsimile copy of online, and that did facilitate the footnote checking process because we have that capability. And then, uh, Lucretia, you may not remember that you played a role in all this because our microfilm reader happens to be right outside the quiet study area. So people come out of the quiet study area ready to talk. Right. Um, and uh, uh, and uh, the library made the extraordinary sacrifice, which I thought was was very cute, of getting me some noise-canceling <laughs> headphones, which are still in Boatwright Library for right. anybody to use today. Right. Well, thank you. We're, we're glad we played a small role in this. A big one. <laughs> well, thank you, Dr. Holton, for your conversation today. Abigail Adams is available in Boatwright Library, and it's on sale in the University Bookstore. You've been listening to podcasts at Boatwright. Our host was Lucretia McCauley. Our guest was Dr. Woody Holton. Editing and production was performed by Andy Morton. Visit Boatwright Library on the web at library.richmond.edu.